Amen. If you would take your Bible and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you or somewhere around you. And uh, we'll be in Romans 3. There's an index at the front of that Bible if you don't know where Romans begins. Next week, uh, as you turn there, next week we'll actually begin a new series of sermons in to go to work our way through the book of Exodus. Um, if all goes according to plan, then that series should take us up into mid-October. Um, in, in the book of Exodus, we watch, we see as the children of Israel become the nation of Israel, born through God's gracious deliverance from slavery, formed by God's call to obedience, promised God's presence. Actually, those three words, deliverance, obedience, presence, those are three good words to hang on to as you think about the flow of the book of Exodus. And so today we're between two series, and uh, we're going. We come. We're going to spend our time today thinking about what Paul writes in Romans chapter three. I want to read verses twenty-one to twenty-six. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our God, we tremble before the truth in these words from your Apostle Paul, and we pray today that you will, by your Spirit, help us to understand them, give us grace to believe them, to love them, to be changed by them, all for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. If you grew up going to church, then you're likely to remember songs that you learned in Sunday school or at vacation Bible school. And as I thought about those even this week, I remember some that were actually a bit unusual. Um, the one that actually came to mind that was unusual, I'm assuming, is based on Jesus' parable about the ten virgins who needed oil for their lamps while they waited for the bridegroom. I don't know if you sang this, but it goes, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, burning, burning. Give me oil in my lamp. It's a little gross when you think about it. Keep me burning. It, give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, 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 keep me burning till the break of day. Now, if that wasn't unusual enough, I remembered another verse. It was, give me gas for my Ford, keep me trucking for the Lord. Now, I don't know if that's just a verse that we learned in Tennessee or if that's something that everybody learned, but I have no idea what that verse was meant to teach me. Uh, <laughs> so there are these unusual songs, but there are also helpful ones, aren't there? They're ones that teach important, vital truth that we need to hang on to. One say about the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. 
the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. Sounds like Martin Luther's children probably would sing that, doesn't it? The B-I-B-L-E. Or a song about the greatness of God. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are His, the rivers are His, the stars are His handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And what should we sing along with the greatness of God, but also the goodness of God? Isn't it that little chorus, God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. And then even if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you heard this one. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak but he is strong. I particularly like the next verse. Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let this little child come in. Now these are truths that we need, don't we? These are truths that strengthen our soul, that equip us to actually live Life. We may not sing the songs anymore, but we dare not let go of the truths that they communicate. And today we come to a text that gives us one of the fundamental truths of our faith. Many of you will be familiar with it. But I would caution us all to not let familiarity keep us from delighting in it. In fact, one of the great dangers for the soul, for any truth that you hear multiple times, for any of you who know Romans 3, who believe Romans 3, who teach Romans 3, one of the great dangers for our souls this morning as we hear is apathy. One of the great dangers for our church right here in this room today is to hear the gospel, to hear the good news of what Jesus has done for us and consider it ordinary, pedestrian, blah, something we want to move on to other things. You see, if we're not on guard, we'll actually tune out rather than lean in. We'll think we're past all of these things rather than knowing we need to meditate on them. We'll think, well, this is for someone else in here when it's really for all of us in here. I once heard a British pastor named Derek Prime say that a healthy believer loves to hear the gospel proclaimed. I pray that's true of us today. May the old, old story of Jesus and his love never become just old. May it never become stale, taken for granted. Instead, may it give us joy and, and, and renew our love for Jesus and, and spark in us a desire to serve and obey Jesus Christ. May it promote evangelism with our friends and prompt worship toward God. May it give us hope as we hear it. And the place we're going to begin is actually by thinking about mankind's problem. Now, Paul doesn't begin there in this text. We have to actually back up a bit in order to see the problem clearly, and we will. Now, if we were to ask people, just people that you know, people you work with, people in your neighborhood, what is the greatest problem that faces mankind today? Well, no doubt there would be a number of answers to that question, wouldn't there? Some people, knowing their news, would say war is the greatest problem facing us today. Others would say disease or poverty 
or problems in education, or problems with the environment, or problems in, with human rights issues. And certainly we can find problems that need solutions all around us, can't we? But then if we press, what is the greatest need of humanity? What is the greatest problem facing humanity? Well, if we had asked that in Sunday school, my guess is lots of hands it would have raised up, right? If we asked in a service like this, if we did some feedback, my guess is you'd tell me because you know your Bibles. You say, I know the answer to that. The greatest problem facing humanity is sin. Sin is the greatest problem. Wouldn't you say that? Sin is the greatest problem facing humanity. And after all, the Bible even teaches, and we've seen it over and over again, that sin is even worse than suffering itself. And in a sense, it's true that sin is the answer, but, but in the letter to the Romans, Paul is more precise than that. Yes, Paul spends a great deal of time talking about sin, especially in the first few chapters of Romans, but he doesn't precisely say that sin is the biggest problem facing humanity. It's actually something else. It's something we see in back in chapter 1. Turn back to chapter 1 and look at verse 18 and let me read it for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's the greatest problem facing mankind today. You see, it's actually not that we're sinful precisely. The problem isn't precisely that we're sinful. The problem is God exists. And God is holy. And God is righteous. The biggest problem isn't that sin messes up your relationships. That sin has messed up your life. That sin's curse resounds even in things like this sinus whatever that I got going on. And cancers and all manner of other things. The biggest problem is that we as sinful humanity will come face to face with a holy and righteous God. That's the biggest problem you face. It's the biggest problem everyone you'll ever meet faces. Because we will stand before God. You see, if there's no judgment, there's no problems with sin. I mean, it's, very, it's like minor skirmishes. And at its most basic level, this wrath is anger. It's not sadness primarily. It's anger. When you are teaching your children about sin and about the consequences of sin, do not leave it with God is sad when we sin. That is not the full story. We should have Paul teach children Sunday school, right? The wrath of God is revealed. But now when we say that wrath is anger, we can't just take our understanding of human anger and our experience of human anger and just put that on God because that's not what God's wrath is like. It's like every other characteristic of God, his love, his justice, his mercy, all of these things. They are not just like what we think they are. We just put our definition of it on him. He is holy. So his His Mercy is different from any mercy that we could just come up with. His justice is different than our justice. His wrath, his anger is different than our anger, our wrath. John Stott puts it this way, The wrath of God does not mean that he is likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, still less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason at all. For there is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God. Nor is he ever irascible, malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, 
uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. And Paul says that wrath is against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness. And from there, now he will prosecute the case that every single one of us are unrighteous and ungodly and we can't dismiss the idea of the wrath of God. And he begins with the Gentile world, with those who are outside of uh, Israel. So he begins, he's talking about the, the world, and he says, um, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, obviously, we see this in the story of Israel, but listen to what he goes on to say in verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Now I want you to imagine the Roman church. This church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And I want you to imagine how a Gentile might be squirming at certain things, wouldn't they? Slinking down in their seat. Averting their eyes from looking toward the front. Because they know. They remember. Their hearts are heavy. It's like Paul's talking about their family members. It's like Paul's talking about their way of life before they knew Jesus and they feel the heaviness of it. They're slinking down in their chairs and all the while the Jew is kind of sitting up in his chair. He's nodding. He's agreeing, maybe even giving a hearty amen. They know all about those people. In all honesty, they're proud But then the pastor keeps reading because Paul isn't going to make a hard line between Gentiles and Jews. He goes right on in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so he says in verse 11, God shows no partiality. None. Apparently there's no room for feeling proud because you think others are worse off than you. I mean, they're the clear sinners, right? We're not. Friends, the those people mentality runs rampant, doesn't it? In terms of what we've just been looking at in, in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 7, we are avid speck hunters in the eyes of others and great ignorers of the plank in our own eye. 
The those people mentality has us saying things about the world outside the church. The those people mentality has us thinking things about people inside the church. Oh, those people. Oh, I know all about those people. But Paul won't let us do it, you see. He won't let you say those people. He'll only let you say us people. Because we have met the enemy and he is us. And so apparently every human being should be slinking down in their chair, shouldn't they? Rather than sitting up. Because we're all in the same boat. We all deserve to face God's wrath. I mean, Paul just marches with his uh, uh, biblical quotations beginning in chapter 3, verse verse 10. But he starts in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Now, it's interesting, when you think about what's written, what struck me is, do you remember what's written in Ecclesiastes chapter 12? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And when you look at the bookends of what Paul just said, he finishes with, there is no fear of God in them. And he begins with, none is righteous. What he's saying is every single one of us has failed in the sole duty of man to fear God and to keep his commandments. And then he underlines the hopelessness of it all. Now we know, verse 19 of chapter 3, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So remember where we started, the wrath of God is coming, it is certain, and all of us will face it, all of us deserve it. And now Paul's saying, there's not a single one of us that's going to come up with the words to be able to object. Our mouths are shut, and the whole world is accountable. And in case you think... You can do something. He says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Are you feeling the sense of hopelessness? You should be. Because if the Bible stops at Romans 3.20, we're doomed. I mean... As we look around, one of the things that is true is that human beings are brilliant and we are creative and we're developing all kinds of technologies all the time, aren't we? We can communicate better. There are these advances in medical technology. There are all manner of problems that are being solved by the development of different things. It's an amazing day that we live in. But the reality is no one will ever develop a technology that can deal with the wrath of God. There is no app for that. There's no human solution for the greatest problem we face. The solution is, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we, are, we have no hope and we are without God in this world. And then we come to verse 21. To two glorious words. Words that should take our chin and lift it. And show us there is hope. 
Paul says, but now. And this is where we get to God's solution. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Paul had left us hopeless at the end of verse 20, hadn't he? He had said, no, 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 well, here's what you don't understand about yourself. You are the prodigal son in the pig slop hoping for something better. And there's no prospect of anything better. And God would be just to leave you there. But now. But now. We can't do anything but now. God has done something. God pulls back the curtain and shows us a way of righteousness we never would have found, we never would have seen. It's a righteousness, a way of being right with Him that's completely separate from the law, completely separate from our pitiful attempts to obey it. In fact, when you look at this verse, verse 21 in, in, in the Greek language, anytime you want to emphasize, one of the ways you can emphasize something in Greek is to move something to the front of the sentence. And what's moved to the front of the sentence is this little phrase, apart from law. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Apart from law. He had just said, laws can't justify you, so now he says, Apart from law, there is a righteousness. And yet it's a righteousness the whole Old Testament bears witness to. That's what this phrase means in verse 21, the law and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. It's a righteousness we can't earn but is given to us as a gift. Look at verse 24, justified by His grace as a gift. It's a righteousness that reaches as far as sin does. Did you notice all the all language? All the all. All are under sin. All have sinned. This righteousness is available for all who believe. He says there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short and are justified by his grace. So both Jew and Gentile are equally sinful, and both Jew and Gentile can be equally justified through faith. It's a righteousness we have through faith in Jesus. That's what he says in verse 22. The way to be made right with God, to be right in God's sight, is through faith. In Jesus. And that begs the question because when you just stop there, what exactly has Jesus done that we are to believe in? What has he done to make us right with God? The answer is in one word in verse 25. I'm going to begin there. It's the word blood. Blood. Blood in the Bible, if you walk out, now, good night, I hope this doesn't happen. But if you walk out to the parking lot and you see all manner of blood all over the place, you don't think, oh, well, someone got a boo-boo. You, you think someone could have died here. Blood points us to death. And so, Paul, it's interesting. Paul spends like almost a full three chapters talking about the sinfulness of mankind. And he's got this blip of blood in verse 25, and the rest is all about faith in Jesus. Now, there are other places you can go to see this, but he transitions with almost no words. He's transitioning from, here's the greatest problem. You can't get out of it. The only way is through faith in Jesus. 
But it's all in this word blood, and he's going to talk about the death of Jesus more later. At the right time, Christ died for us. So what is it that Jesus has done through his death? Well, there are three words that paint three pictures from three arenas of life that help us to know what it is that Jesus has done for us, what it is when we trust in him, what is applied to us. The first word is in verse 24. We are justified. Justified. This is from the court. I want you to imagine a great court scene. This word describes that moment when the judge's gavel falls and he declares the one on trial not guilty not guilty of breaking the law, righteous in the eyes of the law. Now that should automatically make your hand shoot up, shouldn't it? Because how can we, how can any gavel fall and we be said to be not guilty? If any judge in any court has the kind of evidence that Paul has made against us, and then just looks and says, well, not guilty. Do you know what you'd say? You'd say one of two things. Either that judge is incompetent or corrupt. One of two things. Now that's a problem. Some people don't think forgiveness is a problem. Forgiveness is a huge problem. Because we have to be clear on who God is. How can, a, how can God be a good God, a good judge, a righteous judge, and do this? After all, do you, listen to what God warns his people in Exodus 23. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. Why? I will not acquit the wicked. Well, now that sounds more right, doesn't it? I will not acquit the wicked. And yet, if you just let your eyes go down from verse 24 down to Romans chapter 4, verse 5, you'll see that Paul calls God him who justifies the ungodly. How can that be? How can he do that? The answer is the death of Jesus. You see, at the cross, what happens there has often been called a great exchange. And 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus knew no sin. He is perfectly righteous but at the cross, our sin is laid on him so that he is counted and treated as if he is a sinner deserving condemnation. And he dies under the wrath of God. And in exchange, we who are Paul would say, not righteous, no, not one, no one does good, no one seeks God. We who are all of that, when we trust in Jesus Christ, his perfect righteous record is credited to us so that we are counted and treated as righteous in God's sight. You see the exchange? Our sin is laid on Jesus. His righteousness is laid on us. Or think of it this way, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So no, God hasn't overlooked justice, he's fulfilled it, 
God doesn't wink at sin or just set it aside or say no big deal like it doesn't matter. He has punished it in Jesus so that in verse 26, Paul can say that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Don't let anybody tell you that God forgiving people is no big deal. That's just what God does. That's just His job. Forgiveness creates a humongous problem because God had passed over sins in former times. That's what He says. But the cross of Jesus declares that God is righteous for doing that because all of that sin is paid for in the blood of Jesus. And so now we leave the courtroom and we go out into the marketplace and we see this word in verse 24, redemption. Redemption essentially means to pay a price in order to secure the freedom of someone. It could be a prisoner's freedom and it could be a slave's freedom. The Bible says, in our natural condition as slaves, as those who are not righteous, not understanding, not seeking God, become worthless, no one does good, not even one, no fear of God in our eyes. God, the, the Bible tells us that in that condition, as we are before meeting the Lord Jesus Christ, we are slaves to sin. You see, friend, we don't just dabble in sin. It's not, just some, it's not just a set of bad habits I kind of need to break one day. We are slaves to it. Jesus said in John 8, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So now imagine ourselves out in the marketplace, and there is the block where the slaves will be sold, and we are the ones on the block with shackles around our wrists and around our ankles and around our neck and chains binding all of that together. No way of escape. No hope of freedom. And Jesus sees us and pities us and loves us and steps forward and say, I will pay for their freedom. Oh, you will. Well, their freedom will cost you your life. And Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he does. He bears our sin in his body. He takes our shackles, our chains, and dies on the cross under their weight, shedding his blood to pay for our freedom, to get us out of the shackles that would drag us to hell. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We started in the court, we went to the marketplace, and now let's go to the temple. Verse 25, the word is propitiation. And that's a big word. My guess is all week long, unless you read Romans 3, 21 to 26 in preparation for today, you didn't say that word at all. It didn't come up over coffee. It didn't come up in the workplace. It, doesn't, it didn't just roll off your tongue as you were singing to yourself in the mirror every morning. And yet in that day, propitiation would have been a common idea because the, the word itself actually means to, to turn away wrath, to satisfy wrath, to avert wrath, to stop wrath from coming and people would in in that day people would go into pagan temples and they would make sacrifices to turn away the wrath of their gods to keep them basically from coming and zapping them because these gods they could they believed they could fly off the handle at any moment 
And you have to keep them satisfied because you don't know what they might do. So you need to make propitiation. You need to bring a sacrifice to turn their wrath away. And so this is the word that's used in verse 25, but there's something unique about it, something I want you to see very clearly. Look at it. It speaks of Christ Jesus, and then in verse 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Did you see what was unique? Did you see what might set this propitiation aside from every other propitiation that you might hear of in that society? In all those others, people come to make their propitiation to the gods. But here in verse 25, God sets forth the propitiation. In a sense, God doesn't sit around waiting to see if you or I will do something about our sinfulness, do something about his wrath, because he knows not only that we can't, but that we won't. That's how sinful we actually are. If we could save ourselves, we wouldn't. And if we wanted to save ourselves, we couldn't. That's how bad off we are. So what does God do in his love and in his mercy? He puts forward a propitiation. He puts forward Jesus, sends him to die, to turn away his own wrath, to satisfy it. And as, so as Jesus hangs on the cross, suffocating, the wrath of God is turned away from us and turned onto him. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Friends, the death of Jesus is the solution to our greatest problem. Every one of us deserves to face the powerful wrath of God because of our sin. But Jesus, on the cross, stands, as it were, between us and it. The bullet of God's wrath is rightly aimed at us, and Jesus takes it. The flood of God's wrath should rightly drown us, but Jesus drowns in our place. The cup of God's wrath should be drunk all by us, but Jesus drinks every drop of it in our place so that we can sing, no wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by his saving grace and sprinkled with his blood. Have you just meditated on that fact? There is, because Jesus Christ has died for us, there is no wrath remaining for you if you trust him. No wrath. That's the idea of propitiation. There's no wrath remaining for us, left for us to face. I mean, what a Savior. Justified, redemption, propitiation. The court, the marketplace, the temple. That, those three words summarize so well and so beautifully what God has done to solve our problem. But the emphasis here is that this solution to this problem is only applied to those who trust in Jesus. It is not universalism, where if you're just a human being, this is yours no matter how you respond. No, no, no. Paul makes it very clear. In fact, in the middle of verse 22... He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Then halfway through 25, that Jesus is a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. End of 26, God is just and justifier of those who's the one who has faith in Jesus. This is where the emphasis of the letter is going, is to faith. 
We're going to start this ball rolling with faith because in chapter 4, Paul is going to give examples of justification by faith. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he's going to say, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Only the work of Jesus will be sufficient to make you right with God, friends. This righteousness, this right standing, this right relationship with him. It is only through faith in Jesus. But listen, it's, it's actually both exclusive and inclusive, this righteousness of God. It is exclusive because only those who trust in Jesus will be set right with God. But it's also inclusive because all who trust in Jesus will be set right with God. But now. I mean, if you're a Christian this morning, think of what you were. Think of where you were. Think of what you deserved. Even if your life experience wasn't some, you know, grand, you know, make a movie out of it kind of testimony. Think about what the Bible says about you. Think about who you were. You were an enemy of God. Think of the hopelessness of sin. Think of the hopelessness of all the attempts to be right with God through your own effort. And then remember these words. But... Now, rejoice in those words. Praise God for those words. Commit to, to serving God because of those words. If he has done this, I will do whatever he asks, no matter where it takes me. But now... Now I belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to me. Not for the days of time alone, but for eternity. And if you're not a Christian, if you just keep dabbling in it, if you just keep playing around in it, if you just keep coming because your parents make you come, if you just keep taking down notes because you get candy after the service, if you take down notes, if, you just, if you're just putting up with it because your spouse really wants to be here, listen to me, friend. No matter where you are, no matter your sin, no matter your hopelessness, friend, that was then. But... Now you can be made right with God. But now you can be set free from sin. But now you can live without the fear of facing God's wrath. But now you will belong to Jesus and he will belong to you forever if you will trust in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other hope. There is no other salvation. But it is for all who would believe in Jesus. Would you? Would you? Let's bow to pray. As we bow our heads uh, before I pray, I'm just going to take a moment for silence for you to examine your own heart and your own life and consider whether you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And if you are not, to take this moment to confess your sin to him and seek his mercy and ask him to save you. I'll give you a moment and me a moment and then I will pray.
Our Father, we come before you thankful for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thankful that in him we have redemption through his blood. Thankful that in him we have the propitiation in his blood. Thankful that in him we are justified in your sight. We are thankful for your grace which has shown us our sin and shown us our Savior and brought us to you. We are thankful for all that Jesus has done for us. I pray for those who don't know Jesus, who, is, who are not trusting in him. God, I pray that you would help them to see their hopelessness. I pray that they would have a deep, abiding sense of the misery of not knowing Christ. Not for the sake of misery, but for the sake of their grief leading to repentance and faith in Jesus. And I pray for those of us who are trusting Jesus. Oh God, keep us from ever thinking that these things are ordinary or pedestrian. Give us fresh awe and wonder for the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.